0: You know, we're going to be in 1 Peter 4 today, and um, it's coming off of kind of a long weekend for me. It's 4th of July on Wednesday. Did anybody else get like a longer chunk of time off this time because it was in the middle of the week? Nobody? Am I the only one? Oh, I see one hand. Sweet, it was good for me. I loved it. Like, 4th came on a Wednesday, and uh, Friday's normally my day off. So I got Thursday off. I just took that off and had like the second half of the week off of work and really had an amazing time. Went down to spend time with my family, so my parents and my brother and his wife and their kids, and we just spent the two days on the water. Like Thursday, we floated the Hawassi River, which you've never done that, you gotta go do it, it's incredible. And uh, we spent uh, Friday just on the lake, and uh, my family's always been big into water sports. Like we've always just, my parents got a boat when I was in like second grade, and so I grew up in Florida, and if there was a nice weekend, we were going to be on the water. We were gonna be water skiing. We were gonna be knee boarding. We were gonna be wakeboarding. We were gonna be tubing. We were gonna do all the things that you do on a boat. And this weekend, I was reminded of all of that. And one of the things I was reminded of was just getting to see my parents' generosity uh, in this. And so, you know, my parents had a boat. They understand not everybody has a boat. And so they, my dad would just always invite people to go out with us. And as I was reading the text this week, I was actually reminded of this moment. Um, I was probably 13 or 14, and my dad had invited this family to come out on the boat with us. And they had three kids. The oldest was about my age and then two younger. And um, one of the sons in this family was like, man, I really want to learn how to water ski. And so my dad was like, man, we're going to get you up on skis today. And so I remember uh, he gives him his life preserver and he puts it on and he said, all right, just jump into the water. And from the moment that kid hit the water, you could just tell that he was not comfortable at all letting this life preserver float him. Like he just started, he's like trying to swim and stay above the water. I'm like, oh, this kid hasn't spent a lot of time in the water. And we give him the skis. And I don't know if you've ever tried to put skis on in the water, but it's like, it was so awkward. The kid's like flailing around, finally gets the skis on. And then my dad throws the ski rope out and he gets a hold of the ski rope. And it was like, you would have, thought that rope was his life preserver. He grabbed it and just clung to it and he froze and he stopped moving and he held onto that rope. And my dad starts giving him some instructions. He says, hey, when I, when I give the boat gas, it's gonna go and it's gonna pull you out of the water. Now, the biggest mistake that most water skiers make their first time trying is they try to stand up themselves instead of letting the boat pull them up. He said, if that happens, you will fall forward and you will get water in your face just to let go of the rope and I'll circle around, you can try it again so you can kind of see where this is going. The first time, the kid kind of leans back, he holds onto the rope, my dad says, you ready? He's like, yeah. My dad gives it some gas, he leans forward and he does not let go of the rope and water just, just all over his face. And like, I'm like 14, my brother's 16. And we laughed, I feel kind of bad. We like laughed at him because you could see his face through the water. Like his eyelids are like peeled back and his lips are like flapping in the water, you know. And finally my dad pulls back on the throttle and he stops and we circle around. Kid's looking so dazed, like sitting there and he's like, hey, let go of the rope. <laughs> like, don't hold on to the rope. I'll stop the boat as soon as I can, but just let go of the rope. We did that like four or five times. <laughs> Every single time, the kid just like held onto the rope and he dragged through the water. And you know, it was it was this interesting thing because this kid, he had kind of this decision to make. He had this competition of trusts. He thought his trust was in this rope. The rope was not what he needed to trust in. The life preserver wrapped around him, that's the thing that keeps him above the water. But he had it in his mind that as long as he held onto that rope, he would be okay and it was actually the other way around. And I began to realize as I was reading through this text this week that it's a lot like our walk with Jesus. That, that as we walk with Jesus, walking with Jesus is a life, an experience of competing trusts that there are always gonna be these things that are competing for our trust. Where do we place our trust? And Peter is going to speak into this idea of the competing trusts in our lives, the things that we hold on to that are actually dragging us down and the very life preserver that's intended to keep us afloat. And so Peter's gonna go about this and he's gonna say some kind of unusual things uh, for us to hear, some things that are unusual for our culture on our ears. Uh, for example, he starts in verse one and he says, hey, since Christ suffered, then you should arm yourselves with that same attitude so that when you suffer in your body, you'll be done with sin. And we live in a culture, honestly, that does everything it can to train us and condition us to avoid hardship, discomfort, inconvenience, and definitely suffering at any cost. And so this idea that Peter says of, hey, arm yourself with suffering, we hear that and we're like, what in the world? This guy's an idiot. Like, he thinks we should like voluntarily pick up suffering. Like, what in the world is he getting at? So it's a little mysterious. And so instead of starting in verse one, I think the key to understanding that kind of unlocks all that he's trying to say in verse one is actually found in verse 12. And so in verse 12 and 13, we're gonna start there and then use that as kind of a lens through which to view the rest of the text uh, of what Peter is saying here. So look with me in 1 Peter 4, uh, verse 12. Peter says this, he says, "'Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you.'" You know, the first thing I want us to pay attention to is he says, "'Do not be surprised.'" He says, don't be surprised. He's writing to a group of followers of Jesus and he's saying, hey, don't be surprised when hardship comes, when suffering comes. He calls it a fiery ordeal, which we'll unpack in a minute. But what I want us to notice first is, you know, Peter Peter was not a sadist. In other words, he he didn't go around looking for pain and he didn't tell Christians, hey, go around, look for all the suffering that you need to endure. But Peter was a realist. You know, Peter was there the day that Jesus was betrayed by everybody that he loved. Peter, being one of the chief betrayers, he says these words out loud, calling down curses on himself, saying, I don't know this man, and then he locks eyes with Jesus. And if you've ever been betrayed, then you know the the weight of pain, the, the weight of hurt that you feel in your heart. And Peter looked into Jesus' eyes and saw that pain and saw that hurt in his eyes. Peter saw Jesus be whipped and scourged and have the flesh ripped off of his back. Peter saw Jesus' nail scars in his hands and the scar in his side. He watched Jesus suffer. And after watching Jesus suffer, Peter could never make the false assumption that many make today that, hey, if I become a Christian, everything will get easier. I'll never have to deal with hardship again. It's just not true. Like That's not what walking with Jesus looks like. I think Peter would say, hey, listen, if the one that you follow suffered, and how can we expect any different? And so he starts with these words by saying, hey, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when it comes. But then he uses this phrase. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. Now, that, that phrase, fiery ordeal, in the language that Peter was writing in, it was actually just one word. So he was writing in Greek, and, and the word that he would have written there was the word purosis. Uh, purosis, you can hear the word pure in there. It's where we get our word to purify. And, and the, the, the word is translated as a purifying fire. He so said, don't be surprised by the purifying fire. And it's actually, this is the same word that he uses in 1 Peter 1. You may remember Dave talking about this uh, a couple months ago when we were in 1 Peter 1. You can go back and listen to that podcast on our website. Dave unpacks that But somebody saying, hey, don't be surprised by the purifying fire. It was a metalworking metaphor. It was a metaphor taking from the realm of metalworking. And so here's Here's how this works. Um, if you work with metal, you understand if you're a silversmith or a goldsmith, you can't just go dig silver or gold out of the ground and then immediately start making things with it. Now, when you find metal in the earth, the way it is in its raw form, you understand that it is this tangled up jumbled mess of the pure and the impure altogether. And you can't really tell where one begins and the other ends. It's a tangled up mess of the worthless and the priceless. And the metal worker takes that jumbled up mess and he will put it into what's called a crucible so that he can put it into intense heat. Because here's the thing, the impurities cannot stand the intensity of the heat, but that which is pure can withstand it. And so they'll put the the metal into the fire and as they separate that impure from the impurities in the metal worker, will take it out and they're able to polish off the impurities and they'll do that over and over and over again until the metal is pure. I had a teacher in grad school who used the crucible metaphor a lot and one of the things he used to say is, hey, I've talked to a silversmith and I asked him, hey, how do you know how do you know when the metal is done being purified? He says, oh, that's simple. It's when I take it out and I polish it and I can see my reflection in the surface of the polished metal, then I know that it is pure. And Peter says, don't be surprised, dear friends, by the crucible that you find yourself in right now. And I think he's, he's calling to mind the language of the, the writer of Proverbs in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 21 the writer says this, he says, hey, the crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, but it is the Lord who tests the ways of a person's heart. Peter says, hey, this, this fiery ordeal that you're going through, it is the work of Jesus in purifying. Now, he's going to talk about different types of suffering, and I want to make this really clear before we go any further so you understand what I'm talking about here. There's two different types of suffering that Peter's going to kind of address in this text. And we're gonna spend probably 95% of our time just on one of these. And I'll touch on the other one at the very end. But the first type of suffering that I think Peter is identifying is the suffering that comes from walking with Jesus in a world that is resistant to the values of Jesus that there is a suffering that comes just in trying to walk with integrity with Jesus in a world that resists his values. And that's the first type that we'll spend most of our time in. But the second type of suffering is the suffering that just comes from the brokenness of the world around us. Uh, These are the things like dealing with sickness and death and oppression, like that is just part of living in a broken world. But this first type of suffering is where I think we're going to spend most of our time, this idea of the suffering that comes from walking with Jesus in a world that's resistant to the values of Jesus. And what Peter is saying is, listen, when you walk with Jesus in a world that is resistant to the ways of Jesus, it's going to feel like you are in the crucible because when Jesus found you, you were that tangled up mess of pure and impure. And he's helping to separate those two things. Remember, walking with Jesus means experience a life of competing trusts. And Jesus is gonna say, hey, there's a lot of things in your life that you can trust. Just like my friend that wanted to cling to the ski rope. He's going, hey, but I am the one thing that will keep you afloat. It's this life preserver wrapped around us. As the apostle Paul writes in Galatians 3, he says, those of us who are baptized into Jesus have been clothed with Jesus. It's like Jesus is wrapped around us. He's the life preserver. And he says, but when you walk with me, there are gonna be some things that compete with your trust for me. It's like what Peter's doing. He says here, he says, hey, these things have come on you to test you. The the word there could also be translated to prove. This is the same word that Peter uses in chapter one where he talks about the proven genuineness of our faith. In other words, what he's saying is, hey, Jesus is looking at us going, hey, I want you to see the sufficiency of the faith that I am giving you, that you can trust in me above anything else, and faith in me is sufficient. Faith in me is sufficient, and I wanna prove that to you. So you will go through these trials. Now, some people would say, oh, so if hard things produce faith in me, then I should go looking for hard things, but remember, Peter's not a sadist, and neither is Jesus. He's not saying, hey, go look for hard things so you can give faith. No, faith doesn't come from hard things. Faith is the gift of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. But hard things have a way of purifying that faith and taking out the impure. I love the way the writer James Allen says it in his book, As a Man Thinketh. He says, circumstance does not make the man. It reveals him to himself. So we don't look for fires to try to make us more faithful. No, we trust that when the fire is raging that Jesus is at work to prove the goodness of the faith that he has given us. To walk with Jesus is to experience a life of competing trusts. And Jesus is constantly going, hey, let me show you what it looks like to trust me, to trust me, to trust me. I think this is why Peter starts chapter four with that language of, hey, since Christ suffered, arm yourselves. Verse one, arm yourselves with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Because when you understand what is happening, as the fire sets in around you, when you understand that what is happening is for your good and for God's glory, then you're able to endure it. It's like this armor that we pick up. Okay, hard things are coming, but I know how to endure it. I understand what it's for. And he says, when you do this, you'll be done with sin. Now, this doesn't mean that you immediately will stop sinning and all sin will immediately go away. But he's saying, listen, you won't walk through life living for sin anymore. You won't walk through life as a slave to sin anymore. He's basically asking, hey, do you want to grow to look more like Jesus? Do you want to look more like Jesus? Do you want to look more more like Jesus in all of his kindness, You wanna look more like Jesus in all of his goodness? Do you wanna look more like Jesus in all of his faithfulness? Do you wanna look like Jesus in the way that he served others? Do you wanna look like Jesus in the supernatural ministry that he had, where he saw people healed and he saw people coming to faith in God over and over and over again? Do you wanna look like that? He says, then arm yourself with this attitude that it will include some suffering along the way as you grow to look more like Jesus, as he develops his perfect image within you. So Peter says, arm yourselves. But then he keeps going, look in verse three. He says, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Pagans were the way he was referring to people who were not followers of Jesus, unbelievers. You've you, you spent enough time doing what they choose to do, living in debauchery and lust and drunkenness and orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. Uh, I love what Peter does here because he's writing to this diverse group of Christians kind of scattered across modern day Turkey And listen to what he says. He says, hey, you, it's a plural you. You, all of you have spent enough time doing these things. It's almost like Peter just assumes that his readers have all engaged in that list of things that he's writing out right there. And here's why this is so encouraging to me is because I've had multiple conversations with people that go, hey, I I hear you talking about the goodness of Jesus. I I hear you say that Jesus is kind and loving, but you don't know. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the depths of darkness to which I have gone. You don't know where I've been." And what Peter would say to that is, hey, there is no amount of brokenness that is too big for Jesus to heal. Jesus found you, you were a tangled mess of purity and impurity, and Jesus is helping to separate those things. And so if you're sitting here today, it does not matter what you did last night, it doesn't matter what you did this week, there's no amount of impurity that is too big for Jesus to be able to work out. His grace covers all of it. Peter's going, hey, doesn't matter. That's how you used to live. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You spend enough time doing that. Let me show you something different. But he keeps on going and he kind of lays out this list. And I think what we're going to see Peter do, he's going to kind of show, like, hey, walking with Jesus, it kind of becomes this, like, almost like layers of purification that you begin to go through. And so he starts off saying, listing out this kind of list of behaviors. You spent a long time doing these things. It's as if he's saying, hey, you used to run to sexual gratification because it made you feel loved. Hey, hey! you used to run to drugs and alcohol because it was actually one of the things that numbed you from pain and kept you from suffering. You, you used to run to partying because it made you feel accepted and cool and like part of the crowd. You used to bow down to the idols of success or notoriety or money or reputation. You used to do those things. But Jesus is saying, hey, let go of that rope and let me be the one holding you up. You don't need those anymore. You don't need them anymore and it will feel like fire. It will feel like you're in the refiner's fire. I, I, I wish I could tell lots of stories here. I, I've talked with so many people that when they first give their life to Jesus, it's like one of the first things that happens is that the Holy Spirit starts to convict them of things in their life where they were living in rebellion to God that they didn't even know it. They didn't even know that it was sin. They didn't even know it's, it was just part of their life. And that when they came to Jesus, he began to convict them and they had to make this choice. Were they going to trust the words of the one to whom they've just given their lives or were they going to trust this rope that they've been clinging to for so long? I think about this one couple, um, I'll tell you one story. This one couple in Canada that um, we got to know really well when I was a part of a ministry up there. And um, at the time I met that they'd been following Jesus for a couple decades probably. But I remember him telling me the story of when he and his now wife came to know Jesus. They were musicians. They were kind of living in a music scene, just, so, just completely giving themselves to whatever kind of desire they had. And they actually had a neighbor that came and met them and started sharing the gospel with them. And this couple was engaged to be married and they'd been living together for quite some time uh, and they were sexually active with one another and they gave their lives to Jesus. And they said, you know, Jesus convicted us of a lot of things. He convicted us that, you know, the amount of drinking we've been doing was not good. And so we let that go because we could see how worthless it was. He convicted us of the drugs we'd been using, that those weren't worthwhile. We didn't need those anymore. But one of the hardest things was that he convicted us that we were not stewarding our sexuality the way that he would have us, that we were living together and engaged, but we had not spoken vows of covenant to one another yet. We had not fully given ourselves to one another for life yet. And yet we were sleeping with one another. He was. I'll never forget, it was just like this deep conviction that both of us had. And I said, what did you do? He's like, well, I moved out. He said, I went and lived with a friend for two months up until we got married, I lived somewhere else. And I was like, wow, how did you, how, what was that like? He said, well, you know, he said, honestly, it was amazing. He said, because it set us up to step into marriage in a way that we were showing God, God, we want you at the center of who we are and what we're doing as a couple. He said, but it was hard. He said, all the people around us thought we were crazy. So why would you do that? Why would you give that up? That's perfectly normal. That's perfectly natural. You're crazy. God should never ask you to give something like that up. Why would he do that? And they received resistance. And you see, as you walk with Jesus, there's like these layers of, of, of purifying fire that you walk through. And the first layer is just where he starts going, hey, let go of some of the things that you don't need anymore. But then as you keep walking, you start realizing there's even more. He goes on, looking in verse 4. He says, they're surprised that you don't join them and they're reckless, wild living and they heap abuse on you. He says, listen, as you walk with Jesus, as you choose to let go of some of the things that you've been trusting in, other people are not going to understand it and they will ridicule you. I was, I was talking to Chris Malone about this text this week. Chris is our church planning apprentice here. If you were here last week, you heard him preach. And, um, you know, Chris said, man, I read that verse. He goes, that is so true, Aaron. He said, I remember when God convicted me of smoking pot and using drugs, and he was like, and I remember when I let go of it that I had this group of friends that that's who I'd always done that with. Some of those friends were really, like, they admired it, but some of my friends, they just, they ridiculed me. They wanted nothing to do with me anymore. And he said, I learned who my true friends were in the moment when I gave up the thing because some of them loved me. Some of them only loved doing certain things with me. And when I let it go, they were gone. You see, sometimes the purifying fire that God starts in your heart. It is to begin as a work of purifying you. But do you know that sometimes the purifying fire in your life will actually serve as a purifying agent in the lives of others around you? And some will resist that. And they'll say, oh, you think you're better than us now. I see how it is. And they they will, they will reject you. and They will push you away. But others will start watching you even more closely to see what's gonna happen in your life. There's these layers of purification. Some of us, you know, we think, well, I've been following Jesus for a long time. Like, I know I trust God. This competition of trust, I don't understand that. I trust in God. But, you know, as you walk with Jesus, I promise you, he will continue to reveal to you, hey, I know you trust me. Remember this tangled mess? He said, did you know that, I know you trust me, but did you know that sometimes you actually trust in financial comfort as well? Sometimes you're trusting in your stability as well. Sometimes you're trusting in your productivity. Sometimes you're trusting in your personal ability to do things well. Sometimes you're trusting in other people's opinions of you or other people's approval. There's all these things that compete with our trust. And Jesus is saying, hey, I want to purify that. I'm going to remove that. And it's gonna feel like you're letting go of your lifeline because it feels like the thing that keeps you afloat in life. He's like, but that's me. Let me do it. Let me do it. I remember uh, I was 27 years old. And uh, my wife and I had felt the call of God to kind of move to the Pacific Northwest to be a part of church planning up there. And, you know, I'll never forget sitting down to tell my dad that we were leaving. You know, my dad loves Jesus. I mean, he, he modeled for me. I mean, my faith was kind of built on the foundation that he laid. And I remember telling my dad, like, hey, dad, we're moving. You know, we're moving to the Northwest. And he did not approve. You know, and he, he discouraged me from doing it. He said, Aaron, this is a financially foolish decision. Like, You'll never be able to make it. You're not gonna make enough money. You have school debt. Like, why would you quit your jobs? He said, Aaron, why not do this at another time? There's plenty of ministry to be done here in the Southeast. Like, he named all of these reasons. And I remember sitting in my dad's office at our house and just weeping because I did not want to disappoint my dad. And it was in that moment that Jesus said, hey, Aaron, did you know, did you realize how much you trust in your dad's approval? How much you need, you feel like you need his approval that you trust in his approval and there's this moment where Jesus began to go, will you, will you be willing to step into obedience with me even though it means not getting the approval of your earthly dad? And it was like this refining fire moment where I had to decide who am I going to trust? And this is what walking with Jesus is like. It's like he is constantly helping us grow to look more and more and more like him. Now, I think it's really important that we note what Peter does next in this letter, is that Peter wants us to understand, hey, Christianity is not just about having things cut away. You know, if you're sitting here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're like, man, this is bunk, forget this, (laughs) I'm out of here. It's like, Christianity is not just about having things cut away. It's not just about the things that you lose. In fact, what Peter is gonna do in the very next portion of his teaching is, of his letter, he's gonna start talking about, hey, Listen, we're being formed into the very likeness and character and goodness of Jesus. And Jesus longs to give us some good gifts that can be used for his glory and to bless those around us. But the only way you're going to be able to take hold of those gifts is is if you let go of some of the things that have actually been taking you deep underwater. And so you look in verse eight, you know, in verse seven, he says, the end of all things is near. Be alert and of sober mind that you pray. We talked about that alertness and sober-minded several weeks ago. You can go listen to the podcast from chapter two. But then look at verse eight. He says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And then he's gonna start talking about this life with Jesus. Jesus is saying, I've got a lot of things I wanna give you, but you've gotta trust me first. Because when you walk with Jesus, a lot of times, it is a life of serving and giving to others, but as long as we're clinging to the things we think we need, it's gonna be really hard to selflessly give to others, because it often costs us something. So he says, hey, listen, love each other deeply. Did you know that when you love one another deeply, it actually covers over a lot of the conflict and the strife and the sins that come into your life when you're willing to just love one another? He says, hey, offer hospitality, open up your home, open up your lives so that others may come in and see the goodness of Jesus in you. He's gonna say, hey, I I wanna give you this gift of being able to speak, this is crazy, speak the very words of God. That's what he says, he says, those of you who speak, let them speak the words of God so that God will be praised. This is this idea that, that Chris talked about last week of speaking life you know that when you step into life with Jesus, God will use your words to actually bless other people and bring life into them. It's incredible. He says, hey, I want you to offer hospitality, love to speak. I want you to serve. Serve with the strength that God will give you so that he will be praised. And he says, I've got all these gifts I long to give you. But in order to take hold of those gifts, sometimes it's gonna require letting go of the thing that you've been trusting in so that you can take hold of me more firmly and let me be the one that is keeping you afloat. Because a life committed to Jesus is often a life of experiencing these conflicting trusts. And Jesus is going, will you trust me? Will you trust me? Now, I love, I love this. Uh, will Shinnett came up to me after the 9 a.m. and he said, you know, I had this idea. Uh, he said this imagery of water skiing. He says the rope, the handle, It's not always a bad thing, right? Like some of the things that, like my friends that were engaged, they they gave up sexual intimacy with one another for a time, but it's not that they gave that up forever. It's that sometimes these things that we're holding onto were actually meant for good, but the enemy wants to come in and make you a slave to that which was intended for good in your life. But in water skiing, the rope is actually the thing that pulls you through the water that helps you enjoy the whole act of water skiing. And the same is true, there are many good gifts that God has given us, and some of those very gifts the enemy will pervert and try to twist in your life so that you will become enslaved to those good things instead of enjoying those good things to the glory of God. And so you understand that when you walk with Jesus, it's not, hey, I gotta give up everything that's good, everything that's great, everything that feels good, no. It's like, man, I'm gonna reclaim and take the things that have been working to destroy me, and God is gonna work in those to make them give me life. Isn't that beautiful? Like, this is what it looks like to walk with Jesus. Now, Peter is gonna say some other things in here. I can't spend a ton of time on this. but we're still under kind of that first type of suffering, the suffering that involves walking with Jesus in a world resistant to the values of Jesus. I don't know if you notice that there's kind of a sense of urgency in Peter's voice. He says, hey, the end of all things is near. And we read that and we go, man, he wrote that 2,000 years ago. Dude was obviously wrong. Like, the end of time hasn't come. But here's the thing. Peter was with Jesus, When Jesus said, hey, I'm coming back. Now, you don't know when that will happen. I don't even know when that will happen. Only the Father knows. He said, so always live like it's happening tomorrow. And I think what Peter is saying is, hey, the end is coming. Like, Jesus is going to come back. He goes, so will you yield yourself to him? There's this sense of urgency. And in verse 13, it's really interesting because he says, listen, he says, rejoice as you participate in the sufferings of Christ that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Now, I don't know how you feel about the return of Jesus, but I remember when I first started walking with God, it terrified me. This idea that Jesus was coming back, there was like judgment and oh, it was so scary. But what Peter says here is that the, the fiery ordeal, that refining of our hearts is actually at work so that when the glory of Jesus is revealed, there's no fear, but it's like we're overjoyed. I mean, I remember reading the words of Paul where he's like, hey, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I can't wait to see Jesus. And I'm like, how did he get there? He went through the fire. He allowed, he yielded to Jesus so Jesus could take the things he'd been trusting in and pull them away. And I can tell you now, I'm not perfectly refined. Jesus is still not working me. There's things that I still trust in that compete with him. But I can tell you that I legitimately look forward, I long for the day when I get to look Jesus in the face. And if that sounds foreign to you, then just know that Jesus would love to work that out in you, but it may include some fire. It will include some fire. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't deal with the second type of suffering. And I think we get a glimpse of this in the last part of this chapter, verse 17. This is gonna be real brief. We're kind of at the landing place, but I want you to stay with me just a couple more minutes. Listen to verse 17 and 18. Peter writes, "'For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household.'" And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now those verses sound terrifying and scary and the word judgment and hard to be saved and all this stuff, listen to me real quick. judgment here is not referring to condemnation. The judgment of God is basically everything that we've already been talking about. It's it's this place where there are things, this kind of amalgam, twisted up mess of the pure and the impure. And Jesus, he's saying, listen, judgment begins with us who are following him because we've yielded ourselves to him. And he is going through and he is judging between that which is pure and that which is impure and that which is uh, impure. And he's saying, listen, the impure I'm doing away with, I took it on myself. I took it. I took it. You don't have to worry about it. He said, I'm leaving the pure. You're being made to look more like me. Judgment. He's judging between the two, distinguishing between the two. But you know, here's the thing is that sometimes it is that fire that comes through suffering as a follower of Jesus in a world resistant, but sometimes the fire comes because suffering is just part of living in a broken world. And there are going to be things that come into our life because we are surrounded by brokenness. And so when we encounter untimely death or disease or tragedy or oppressive like systems, when we encounter this type of suffering... I think Peter would still say the same thing. He'd say, listen, you can trust in Jesus. The first type of suffering comes from Jesus because he's convicting and purifying. The second type of suffering comes because we live in a fallen world. But this is where I take great comfort in what Paul says in Romans eight. He says, listen, our God, our God works all things out for the good of those who love him. So even the trials you're going through right now that have nothing to do with you just trying to walk with God, God says, hey, I can even take those horrendous, awful things and I can use those to make you look more like Jesus. See, God is just able to bring beauty from ashes. It's what he does. Now, but here's what I think he's saying here to those of us who are followers of Jesus. He says, listen, that whole process begins with us. That God is working in us, he's refining us, he's judging the impure and the pure." And he's going to do that through conviction of the Holy Spirit. He's going to do that through trials and hardships that we go through. And He says, listen, if it is hard for you, though you know the goodness and the love of Jesus, can you imagine how difficult it is for people who are far from God, for people who don't know the hope of Jesus, people who don't know the grace of Jesus? Do you know how hard it is to walk through hardship? I've had friends that are far from God that just walked through tragedy of of, of suicide, of a loved one. My friends who are far from God, who've walked through the, the, the tragedy of sickness and cancer that won't go away. And man, it's like what Peter is saying, hey, will you have compassion? When you understand how hard it is for you, do you understand how hard it's got to be? And will you be the one, followers of Jesus, Will you allow Jesus to work out his image in you so that you can be the picture of hope, so that you can be the picture of goodness, so that you can be the picture of Christ's love in that person's life when they need it, so that they can come to know the hope that is available to them in Jesus Christ? Will we be a people of compassion in times of urgency or will we turn a blind eye to the suffering of the world around us? Jesus says, hey, I want to work out my image in you. I long to, and when I do, I'm gonna put my image on display through your life, through your life as a church, through your life as my people around the world. It's a beautiful thing. I love the way Peter lands it, and this is the way we're gonna land it. Uh, He lands it by saying this. He says, hey, listen, those who suffer according to God's will, commit yourselves to your faithful creator and continue to do good. So this is kind of where we land this morning. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, it's this simple thing. Hey, one, don't be surprised. (laughs) Arm yourselves in knowing that there's gonna be fiery ordeals. There's gonna be the crucible moments. Arm yourselves with that and know that Jesus is working it out for your good. And will you be willing to let go of the things you've been trusting in so that you can cling more tightly to Jesus? But the other thing is this. He says, commit yourselves to him, commit yourselves to him, trust in him. And so, you know, we always finish our time in the word around communion. When we come to the table and there's this piece of bread that reminds us of the body of Jesus that suffered. There's this cup of juice that reminds us of the blood of Jesus and is this this, this physical reminder every time we come around it that, hey, Jesus suffered. Jesus endured temptation. Jesus endured all of it. And there's no amount of fire that can do away with the goodness of Jesus in my life. And so we take this bread, we take this cup as a reminder that Jesus is here in the fire with us. And what I wanna encourage you to do is get together with the people that you came with. Get together and just share, hey, what are the ropes that you've maybe been holding on to that Jesus is inviting you to let go of? What might be the fire that you're going through? And if you're, a, if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, man, I just wanna tell you, It is so good to commit your soul to the one who created you. He loves you immensely, and he longs to lead you into his likeness, uncovering the beauty of his image that he put in you for the goodness of your life and the glory of his name. So I'm gonna pray for us and I'll I'll send us to communion. Let's pray. Father God, I love you. I love the way you work in our lives. Jesus, I love that you're able to take even the hard things and work beautiful things out of them. Jesus, I love that you take our tangled hearts that are full of the pure and the impure, and out of your grace and your goodness, you begin to refine and take out the impure to look more like you. Jesus, would you help us as a church be a church that is fully armed with the understanding that walking with you means that you are completing and forming your image in us, and at times it will be uncomfortable. Lord, will you help us to be a people who are willing to let the fire you're burning in us shine bright on the people that don't know you so that what you've begun in your church may stretch out to every last person on earth that they may all come to know the goodness of Jesus. Lord, would you come as we commune? Would you be here in our midst? Come, Lord, come. In your name we pray, amen.